invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin reading at verse 26. And we're going to continue through 43, but we'll be looking at verses 32 through 43 this morning. Luke chapter 23, let's begin reading at verse 26. This is God's word regarding the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. As they led him, that is Jesus, away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we've heard this story many times, but we need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, and we pray, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would speak to us, and and Lord, may uh, your word open our ears so that we would uh, hear and see the beauty of our Savior Jesus, maybe some of us for the first time, that we would worship him and cast ourselves upon him and live for him and in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Joanne and I were in, uh, in Cambridge, uh, we came across a marriage conference that was being put on by the Prop- Proclamation Trust. It was just an overnight thing of 24 hours, but it looked interesting, and, um, and my wife seemed particularly interested, so we, uh, we signed up. And, and uh, it was this uh, intimate gathering. There were six other couples uh, there. We were, uh, we, were one of the, we were the oldest couple uh, uh, of the ones who were there, uh, except for the leader, uh, Ben. Uh, it's Wallace Ben. I keep getting Ben Wallace and Wallace Ben mixed up. 
but it's Wallace Benton and his wife Lindsay, and, and uh, Wallace was this just really gracious old guy, probably 70, uh, older guy, I should say, 70, 73, somewhere in there, um, had been a bishop in the, in the Church of England, a very conservative man, um, but a very pastoral, and uh, so I had a talk with him just about my uh, experience, and some of, talked to him a little bit about some of the uh, anxiety and, and depression, I've mentioned that before, that that I was experiencing a bit, and he, um, he said, well, he remembered talking to a pastor once who had come to him and said, uh, the pastor said, I, I'm just running on empty. I'm preaching sermons uh, that I no longer feel. I don't experience it. I don't, I, I'm dead to it. And, uh, and Wallace said, um, he said to this man, I want you, I want you to, to take a break. I want you to get away with your wife, and I want you to do nothing but read... Um, about the cross. I want you to go to the prophecies and, and everything you can find in the Bible that's about the cross and, and, and then read the story of, of the crucifixion and read, read about the difference that's supposed to make. And he says, I want you to keep reading and don't come back until you are once again lost in wonder, love, and praise. And the man did that and it radically reoriented his ministry. I wonder when's the last time you've been lost in wonder and love and praise because of the cross. Mike Horton has published several books, many articles really, talking about how in America we seem to have a Christless and a crossless Christianity, that our Christianity is about other things, about Joel Osteen, maybe your best life now, or just about how to be helped and healed from your brokenness, but, but not really about the radical crisis we thought about last week of a, a holy God and the reality of sin and the judgment that, that we deserve. Bonhoeffer noticed the same thing, that we don't seem, American Christianity didn't seem to have that tenor of, of being in touch with radical judgment and radical forgiveness. Let me just ask you, what difference did the cross make in your life this week? What difference did it really actually make that the Son of God was, was crucified bearing uh, your sin and, and, um, and, and that happened really truly and it happened for you? So when the Holy Spirit nudged you to do some act of generosity or kindness for your husband or your wife and your instincts immediately said, I'm not doing that, did the cross come in? And, and say, yeah, but you, you serve a crucified Jesus who did that for you. And that moved you then to, to a different uh, pattern of life. Maybe this week was a week where you just experienced um, shame and you wore your shame this week and the cross just wasn't able to penetrate that shame. You, you couldn't get, get your hand on the fact that that shame has been born for you. Maybe you're living in unrepentant sin. And you know it's not right. But you just don't seem to, to have the, the, the traction spiritually to, to make a break from it. The, the cross doesn't seem to have power. You see, I, I ask the question because I, I think we often live without, without thinking about it or not really seeing the cross. And, and it's supposed to be at the center. As I was just studying this week, I'm, I'm thinking, this this is, this is it. Everything else we do. What it means to be a Christian is, is because of this, that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, went to a cross 
And this is what motivated and drove the apostles and, and molded the early church. So, so when Paul says, this is, this is how I live, the life I, that I live in the flesh, in all the weakness of the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. That the cross wasn't just a, a something that happened that he acknowledged, but it was, it was the tenor and the, the molding principle of his life. That Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave his life for me on a cross. That's the life I live in the flesh. You see, the problem is we can, we can acknowledge the cross but not really see it, and that's what we have here this morning. We have, we have this tragedy of people who are standing right there but they, they missed the, the significance. They, they saw with their human eyes, they saw the wood, they saw the nails, they saw the blood, they saw the, the, the bodies of these three men hanging there, but they didn't, they didn't see the incredible, eternal, life-transforming significance of it. Of all the people who were there, so the soldiers and, and the, the people and even Mary, the mother of Jesus, they saw a crucifixion, they saw maybe an injustice, they saw a failure or a tragedy, but they didn't see what was actually happening. God was condemning sin, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 3. That's what was happening. He was, it was, this was the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was nailing to the cross the law that stood opposed to us. As he, the great high priest, is offering his own body on the altar of God to atone and cover and pay for the sins of, of people. This is Jesus, the king, conquering as he is destroying death and laying a foundation for an eternal kingdom, everything from this point on begins to be made new. But people, nobody saw it. The text tells us about the people who missed it. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. The people who missed it, Luke mentions four different groups of people. First, the masses, the people. We talked about them last week. These are the people who were following, many of them, maybe most of them women, and, and Luke says, they stood by watching, but they're not seen. All they saw was the obvious. They saw men being crucified. Again, maybe they saw injustice. They knew that Jesus did not deserve this. Uh, they, they recognized that Jesus does not belong there between these two criminals. But there he is. And so it, it looks, as they look at Jesus, they see failure. I mean, look at the evidence. He's nailed to a Roman cross. He's suffering the death of a condemned man. You cannot deny that he's there and that his, that his presence there means failure. He's not going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be dead in a few hours. I mean, how much more evidence do you need? Just open your eyes and look. It's over. Of course, uh, what many in the crowd would mourn, the religious rulers reveled in. The rulers scoffed at him. Notice they don't speak directly to Christ. The soldiers do because they're there at the foot of the cross. And they, and they say, well, if you're the king of the Jews, do something. 
But the religious rulers are probably off. They might not even be present at the cross because we see them talking to one another. They congratulate each other as they mock Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Wink, wink, elbow. You see, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? To, they're willing to acknowledge Jesus saved others. They can't deny what he did. Lazarus is walking around and fully alive. There are blind people who have sight. There are, there are lame people who are, who are running around the city. Demon-possessed who now are set free. They, they can't deny any of his miracles. He saved others. They just said it was by the power of the devil. That's how he did it. And, and their verdict is, is seemingly true. I mean, Jesus is dying the death of a condemned, damned man. That, that's, that's what's happening here. He, he's not just dying. This is the death of the cursed people. So here's this man who said he was the Messiah, the chosen one of God, promised from uh, uh, throughout the history of the Old Testament as, as the prophets spoke about one who would come, this, this son of David, the chosen king. He's not the, he's not the chosen one. Look, look at him. He's the despised one. He's the rejected one. Rejected by God and man. I mean... Open your eyes, manifestly condemned. Scripture says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And Jesus is cursed. He could not be possibly farther from the Messiah. He's the, he's the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ. Because he's naked, he's bleeding, he's dying, nailed to a Roman cross under the judgment of God. That's what they see, and that's what they delight in. The Roman soldiers saw a pathetic joke. I mean, really, um, they took a lot of uh, pleasure in the sign that was put over Jesus, the, the king of the Jews. Pilate had managed to really stick his, his finger in the eye of the Jewish people. They screamed for him to die. Well, okay, then, then uh, he will die. But Israel, behold your king. And the irony would not be lost on the Roman soldiers. They despise the Jewish people. And it would give them great satisfaction to see this pathetic figure nailed to a cross uh, named as uh, a Israel. Behold your king. You see, in, in, in their eyes, Jesus is he's just a, another tragedy, a poor guy who uh, unfortunately got on the wrong side of the wrong people and he got rolled over by the political powers of the day. Let's just be honest. So, hey, king of the Jews... If you're, if you're such a king, well, then show it. Prove it. Save yourself. We, if we know anything about kings, kings take care of themselves. Uh, Jesus, show it. He's a pathetic joke. And then we have the thief on the cross who sees a useless Christ. It's very interesting that, that this man is coming from a different place. The, the religious leaders, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Roman soldiers, and even the crowd, um, 
They saw the powerlessness of Jesus. They mocked him for his powerlessness. He's nailed to a cross. This man, uh, he's not mocking Jesus for his lack of power. He's railing against Christ for refusing to use his power. He doesn't say, are you the Christ? He says, are you not? He'd heard about Jesus. He maybe had seen a miracle. Are you not the Christ? Well, then do something. Don't you have unique power that no one else has? Well, then use it. You see, you, you can sense his frustration. He's, he's hanging, dying on a cross, and, and next to him is, is a man who he actually believes is able to rescue him. But the man refuses to do it. And so he rails. The Greek word means to revile or blaspheme. He's furious with Christ. Furious. Because this Jesus, with all of his power, is utterly, absolutely no use to him if he will not exercise it for his end. The world is full of people who feel that way. There are those who think there is no God and and they just get on with their life. But there are many, many people who think that there is a God, and they're furious because God has not helped at all. We met a man in London. We were Sunday morning, went to church, and we were walking back home, and there was a man playing music on the street corner, Christian music. So I went over, and I thought maybe he was a street preacher. And I asked him if if that's what he was doing. And he said, no, I'm an atheist. I said, well, why are you playing music? He said, well, people like that. And then I noticed he had a little basket down by his feet where people could put money in. And I said, well, why are you an atheist? And he, he says, well, I used to go to church, and, um, but it doesn't work for me. And so we had a conversation. Uh, and originally he started out by saying, well, he was an atheist because Darwin has proven that, that everything just sort of happened. But when I pressed him, he got very stern, um, somewhat angry, and he got to the real issue. And the real issue was that he had suffered great losses in his life. And he told me about them. And he said, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and God did absolutely nothing. And he was angry. He was bitterly angry. He said, all I wanted was a decent life where I could have a home and a family and a, and a job and go on vacation and bless some people. That's all I wanted, and this is what I got. I got living hell. And God has done nothing to help. I do not need God's forgiveness. If anything, he needs mine. Now, I hope you don't scoff at that. Because it's a profoundly true reflection of a natural human heart, including maybe yours this morning. There are a lot of cynical Christians who deep down wonder how come God didn't show up when I needed him? How come God's not helping right now? Haven't you ever felt that God failed you? Haven't you ever wrestled with that? His seeming refusal to come to your time of need and use his power to help you, isn't that, 
I don't, know if, I don't know if you've ever really addressed the reality of struggle and pain in life and, and, and the reality of the power of God and not had to face that question. And what do you do then, you see, when, when God allows awful, heartbreaking, life-devastating things to happen? And He doesn't, he doesn't intervene I mean, read the Psalms. David's, Lord, why? How long? What? Where are you? But you see, friends, the cross gives us this incredible perspective because, because it shows us the, the, the ways of God that we would never, we'd never see otherwise. If there was ever a moment they cried out for divine intervention, the cross is it. This... This righteous man has always only done what is perfectly pleasing to the Father. He's never in thought, word, or deed sinned, ever. And so, now he's hanging desecrated, shamed, scorned, hung like the worst of criminals there on a tree, uh, tormented by these, these men of dust, created by his power, sustained by his power, Men who their entire life have rebelled and hated God, and, and yet God is allowing his son to be put to death by them. See, I can't imagine angels in heaven must have been wondering, and the demons of hell may be just puzzling. Is God really going to allow this? Can this injustice stand? Does justice mean anything if, if this one is allowed to die this way and there's a God in heaven with the power to intervene and he does not? How do you make sense of that? Well, the sense is that, of course, God was intervening. The Father was intervening, but it was for us, not Jesus. He was not denying justice. He was proving justice. The cross is the most stunning monument to divine justice ever raised. For God was not willing to leave your sin and my sin unpunished. Not any of it. Even though it meant pain, the penalty in the body of his own precious, innocent son. In the cross, God is just as well as the justifier of the ungodly. <clears throat> you see, the, the, the cross then challenges the, the, our common way of thinking and seeing. We live by sight. That's where people are living as they gather around the cross. That's, that's all they see is what they can see with their eyes. And you have all this tumult of emotion. You have, you have uh, over here people crying and weeping with overwhelming grief. And over here you got the religious rulers laughing and mocking and, and enjoying their victory. And, and here are the Roman soldiers um, just scoffing at the, at the, at the weakness of, of Christ and laughing at the irony of this king. All of them caught in the moment. All of them trusting what their eyes are telling them. Everyone accepting what the cross seems to be saying, everybody living by sight, except one guy, except one guy. There was a man who actually saw, and that was the other thief. So here you have this incredible 
picture of a man who, who saw. You have the crowds who don't see, you got a man who does. The, so the, this one criminal is rebuking Jesus. Use your power. Do something useful. And the other man says, don't you fear God? Don't, don't, don't you fear God? Are you out of your mind? Since you are under the same sentence of damnation? And we indeed justly, we're just receiving the due reward of our deeds. Do you not fear God, you foolish, wicked man? That's an incredible question. When's the last time you heard anybody ask it? Nobody asked that question. Not in our world where God exists to sort of help us have the life we hope to have. Where people feel very free to vent their frustration with God. Even Christians will talk somewhat proudly about their anger with God and, and how God understands. And somebody needs to stand up and say, you, you, what, what in the world are you talking about? Don't, don't you fear God? Has God ever, 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 ever committed an injustice against you? Ever? Something that you could actually take before the throne of God and say, God, I did, not, I did not deserve this. This was a miscarriage of justice. I deserved X, you gave me Y, and I need an accounting. Has that ever happened in your life? Can you imagine standing before the holiness of God and, and, uh, and, and able to say that? And, and, and you see, it's not, you won't be able to say it just because God is God. You won't be able to say it because it won't be true. It can't be true. See, if, if hell is, is actually what we deserve, and, and we confess that we believe that, if, if hell is actually what we deserve, and that would be a just sentence, then how could anything less than hell possibly be injustice? It just it can't be. So you see, the thief on the cross is... His eyes are being opened. He's been a criminal and not some petty criminal. He's not there for shoplifting. He's, he's broken the law in some way that makes this awful death just. And he acknowledges it. And you see, this man sees the real crisis of his life. His crisis is not that the Romans caught him. His crisis isn't the nails are holding him there. His crisis is that he's under condemnation from God. And eternity is moments away. Do you not fear God? You know, when you come under the truest conviction of sin, it'll be a conviction of your failure to fear God. That not only have you done and said and thought the wicked thing that you said and did and thought and, or failed to do, but you will have this overwhelming sense that in that instance, in that activity, in that moment, you had no 
fear, no reverence, no respect, no awe, no love, no concern for God. None. And he created you and he sustained your life and he's worthy of all praise. He's never done an injustice to you. See, that's what the man asks. That's what he knows that God is worth fear. Not fear in just, just trepidation. But the great crisis of life is that, is that he understands he is justly dying under the sentence of God's righteous condemnation. And he looks at this other man and says, what's wrong with you? How can you not fear God? Seeing that you are guilty as I am and you are dying and you will meet him very soon. And then eternity of judgment stretches out in front of you. How can you possibly be railing against this innocent man? You've lost your mind. Friends, this is the beginning of wisdom. This is where it all begins. When people begin to wake up, they, they come to this. And those who are railing against God, no matter what awful things they've experienced, do not understand what they're talking about. They, know, they don't realize that God has never done them an injustice. And they are receiving, they receive anything less than hell is grace. So, so this man asked the question, but he doesn't stop there. He moves now in his faith, and, and he turns to Jesus, and he says these, these astonishing words. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is so amazing. This is messianic, messianic language. The Messiah, when he comes, is going to come into his kingdom. He's going to be a king who establishes a kingdom, who inaugurates a kingdom, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will not be shaken, a kingdom that will be uh, eternal in its glory and its bliss. And this man looks at Jesus, the same Jesus everybody else is looking at, and he sees a king. I see that you're the Messiah, the Messiah of God. You are the chosen one. I know, Jesus, what you're doing. You're, you, are, you are coming into a kingdom. And, and so, Lord, when that, when that happens, when you're done with that, would you, would you remember me? It's just, it's just astonishing. How could, you, how could this man possibly think that this naked, beaten, bleeding, dying, condemned man is on his way to a kingdom as a king? How, what is he seeing that would make him think that? Well, he's just seen with the eyes of faith, faith that God gives, and faith is a conviction of things unseen. It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's miraculous, nobody else sees this. None of the apostles are thinking Jesus is on his way to a kingdom. Mary's not thinking he's on his way to a kingdom. They just see the blood and the shame and the death and the failure and but this man sees, he sees glory, he sees a conqueror, he sees a king, and most importantly, he sees a savior for sinners. I mean, think of the audacity of his statement. He has confessed that he is dying justly as a condemned man. He confesses he spent his entire life in sin and rebellion against God. He knows that's true. And now he's turning to Jesus a man whom he absolutely knows is the son of God and is without sin and is on his way to a kingdom, a kingdom where God will dwell with righteous men. How could he ever hope 
to imagine that Jesus would remember him when he comes into his kingdom? What, what could possibly make him think that Jesus would save someone like him? He's got nothing to bring. I mean, do you, do you sense how just audacious this is? What is this faith resting on? Where does he get this conviction? What makes him think this is even possible? And the answer is, is because Jesus was hanging there next to him. Because if Jesus is dying there with him, though he has done nothing wrong, the only possible reason is some, that somehow he's dying for him. That, that somehow justice is being satisfied for his sin and grace is available for a criminal like him. He's heard the word of Jesus as he's being nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This man is able to forgive sins. And, and if he's able to forgive the ones that nailed him there, then maybe he could forgive one who was justly hanging there. And he comes to believe in grace. And that's the ground of his assurance that there, this, this, this innocent man is, is dying with him and for him. Friends, that's, that's evangelical faith. Believing, you see, that, that you, have a, you have a basis, a ground for assurance that why would God ever possibly think about saving you? And unfortunately, we sort of assume that, well, it's just kind of what God does. But the truth is, you see, that God has given us a true foundation when you, are at, when you face you at your absolute positive worst, when, you, when, you, when you, God gives you the eyes to see the truth about your wicked, wretched heart, and then you can see that there's a Savior that was dying there for you and that you were crucified with him. That's the gospel. That's evangelical faith. And then we need to close by just looking at what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what Jesus says to people who wake up to the fear of God, the truth of their sin, and turn to Jesus, believing he's a savior of sinners. Jesus says truly. When he says truly, he means pay attention. Uh, that What I'm about to say is absolutely, utterly, eternally serious and true. It will never be changed. Truly, I say to you. It's such a personal statement. Jesus is not saying something generally to the public. He looks directly at this man and he says, I want to say something to you personally and directly. I say this to you. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Luke uses the word today uh, several times in the gospel. and it, oh, It's always about salvation. So the angels come and they say, today, in the city of David, there's born to you a Savior who's Christ the Lord. Today, salvation has come near. When Jesus uh, begins his ministry, he goes in Luke 4 into the temple and he reads from the book of Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to anoint, the, uh, has anointed me and, and, and sent me to preach the good news, to set captives free. And then he closes the scroll and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Salvation has come to Israel. And so when Jesus says today, he's, he's, he's reminding this man that this is the day of grace. Salvation is, is right here. It's not far off. All of its goodness and grace and power is available for this man right now, and, and the fruit of that will be paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Paradise is, is being in the presence of God. That's what it is. Eden was called paradise because God was there, and when God was not there, it was not paradise. It's what we were made for. It's what every person hungers for and, and, and tries to 
to find fulfillment for that hunger a thousand different ways in this, in this fallen world. And there's no satisfying it. Because end of the day, you hunger for this, for paradise. You hunger to be reconciled with God, to be, to be once again in communion with your creator, to see beauty uncomparable, to have peace forever and joy overflowing. And that happens in the presence of God, reconciled to God. And Jesus says to this man, the most beautiful words today, you will be with me in paradise. Friend, has Jesus said those words to you? Has Jesus said those words to you? You're not a Christian because you were raised and born, in the, born and raised in the church. The, there is only one way to be a Christian, and that's to meet this Jesus the way this man met him. Through a fear of God, acknowledgement of sin, asking the Savior to remember you, and from Scripture, hearing the Savior say, I remember you. Today, salvation has come to your house. This is the way of salvation. It happens by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. And this is also an insight into the Christian life. The, the thief suddenly um, didn't, the, the pain didn't suddenly disappear, did it? He was still there to a cross. He was still in the flesh, in this world. Uh, there, were, there, was, there, there was still suffering to endure, but the Bible says, Jesus says, that's, that's the way of the Christian life, that, that coming to Jesus doesn't make everything better. Not, not, not immediately and, and, and personally. There, there's pain, but, there's, but with the pain, there's now peace. That the great crisis has been resolved and, and that somehow now even the suffering is for the glory of God and for our good. We claim that by faith. We don't see it. We claim it by faith. But we have to, friends, we've got to apply this or we'll, or we'll just miss it. We'll just miss it. I was uh, reading, uh, I'll wrap with, with this. I was reading um, in Tim Keller's book on preaching. And he talks about how uh, people, Christian people, been in the church all their life, and they, and they, they can tell you the doctrines and the truths of, of the Bible, but those truths haven't gotten traction. And he says he remembers talking to a, a, a young, a 16-year-old girl who was just wrestling with anxiety and, and uh, some depression. And he, he was talking to her and, uh, and, and trying to help her understand how blessed she was as, as a Christian, that God loves her and that Jesus Christ died for her and she's an adopted a child of God. And, and she looked at him and she says, I, I know, but what good does that do when no boy will even look at you? There are many Christians who say, I know, but what good does it do when my marriage is as hard as it is or when my kids are doing what they're doing or when my work is such, so hard and, and my career has failed and what good does that do when I can't have the thing that I really want more than anything? Oh, my friend, I, I just pray that this morning you'll realize that the thing that will bless you more than anything is, is this knowledge that you, the criminal, you, the sinner, are able to be justified and forgiven and reconciled with God forever in Jesus Christ. That that's the crisis of your life. And that's what Jesus Christ can do and does do for everyone who looks to him. And that that then now functions in your life. That every other trial, every other uh, circumstance of life is, is, is seen and read through the lens of the cross. If Jesus did this for me, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and loves me and gave himself for me.
May that be your life. Let's pray. Oh God, in heaven this morning, we've come to the foot of the cross. And Father, we confess for some of us, it's been a long time since we've been, we've been there. We've come, oh Lord, many times uh, to, to appeal to you for help. And that's not wrong. But Lord, so often we, we've, not, we've not come to the cross to be lost in wonder and love and praise to be taught again the fear of God and the the glory of the gospel. That here there was radical judgment on our sin and radical forgiveness for sinners. And that changes everything. And that gives us the the grace to, to forgive those who've wronged us. How could we not in light of the cross? That gives us the power to endure in, in hard circumstances because if you've loved us this much, you will love us all the way to the end and give us daily what we need. And that gives us, Lord, the power to, to begin saying no to besetting sins because we simply can't live there anymore. We don't belong to it nor it to us. We died with Jesus. And there's a new gentleness and kindness because we don't have to fight and make our way and get what we think we deserve because we've acknowledged that we don't deserve anything but that you give everything by grace as we look to Jesus. Oh, Father, I pray that the cross would begin molding our lives in a brand new way. May it start with repentance and confession. Break our hard hearts. Oh, God, don't let us be at the foot of the cross and not see what it means for us. May give us courage to speak to a neighbor about Jesus. This is truth and this is life and there is none other. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would do that work by your spirit in our lives for the glory of Jesus. Amen.